Welcome back to another episode of The Hard Truth. I'm Dana Wrights, and I'm joined by analyst Batul Sobeiti today to have just a casual conversation analyzing the ICJ ruling. Um, a lot of things are up in the air. A lot of people don't know what to make of this. And we thought that Batul can help highlight um, really what's going on and what the ICJ ruling really means. Welcome to our show, Batul. It's nice Thank to you have you. Thank you for having me, Zainab. It's my absolute pleasure to be back on. So, Batul, tell us, you know, we, we heard from the ICJ's initial provisional ruling and um, there's mixed feelings about it because, you know, a lot of people are um, saying this is a victory. It's much more than people expected um, it to be. Um, and others are saying that because the ceasefire was not called um, and that, you know, this case really might even take years for them to uh, truly call it a genocide. What do you really make of this? Is this really a victory? And what can people take from this? Right. So in a nutshell, the outcome of the ICJ is that there is a plausible risk uh, of genocide in Gaza. Um, I personally wouldn't consider the outcome of the ICJ a victory, simply mm -hmm. based on the extent of the genocide in Gaza. And of course, the context of Gaza, because we're talking about uh, illegal besiegement um, that was followed from, uh, you know, over 40 years of illegal occupation. Um, the ICJ couldn't have gone less than this. Um, so less than, you know, coming to the point where it calls it a plausible risk of genocide. Otherwise, it will lose its credibility. So what the ICJ did is it explicitly ordered the uh, Israeli occupation military to stop killing Palestinians. Um, in terms of going more than this and demanding for a ceasefire, it would be very naive to look at the ICJ as though it's some kind of independent or impartial body. It's really just an extension of the UN. It's actually the UN's top court. So ultimately, as we know, the UN refers back to the decisions of the superpowers and it's all based on their interests. You know, mm -hmm. Lest we forget the fact that the UN, its origin was that it was created by the victors of World War II. So that's America and Britain. So mm -hmm. an international body like the ICJ will ultimately resort to outcomes and decisions that will have many dimensions. They'll have many different faces um, and they use that as they please and they fit it to any situation that they want. So it's designated in such a way that each side will kind of take from it what it will. So let me give an example. Um, the Israeli occupation entity might actually claim victory that it was able to escape um, with there being no cause, you know, for a ceasefire. You know, you have America, who's the top sponsor of the occupation entity. They were not implicated in any way, nor was Britain. You know, at the same time, uh, this very ruling can be used as a pressure lever against the occupation entity, not just from the justice-seeking entities of the world that really want to see an of justice and really want to see an end to not just the genocide but the besiegement but even mm. america itself even the us um can in places where they want they can use this ruling to pressure the occupation entity they can use this as a kind of red card so even mm. if america does not support the idea of charging the israeli occupation entity with genocide right now they mm. allow the court to label it as plausible genocide but as we mentioned that doesn't actually tangibly translate to anything in the current stage you know but they might actually in the future use this to their benefit especially given you know the icj is seen as an independent body um so the outcome when you, itself when you, yeah. when you say when you say benefit do you mean that you know when when the united states and the powers lose interest in in israel 
in the occupation. They just see it as a burden, as a liability. Right, right. So um, this outcome, of course, it it doesn't carry conviction when they don't want to convict, but it carries Mm -hmm. just enough room such that if they wanted to convict, they can rely on these court rulings. When we talk about the phase post-October the 7th, that is an new phase and it's also evolving with time you know they had phase one of the battle phase two and now we're on phase three where they've you know semi withdrew all of their troops on the ground because the occupation entity has proven that it's unwilling to face the Ghazan resistance in in face-to-face combat so the post-israeli occupation entity failure phase after this current confrontation ends, is not one where we can say it was the same as pre-October the 7th. You know, the occupation entity from America's perspective cannot be relied on anymore. Why? It is a failure. You know, it's unable to protect itself, you know, let alone protect Western interests. And the West isn't just going to sit there and and is going to keep supplying it with arms. And it's not, it doesn't care about facilitating the Zionist dream per se, as long as the Zionists are actually facilitating imperialist interests but actually it's proved such that the direction in the region is that you have these strong resistance forces on the ground that are inflicting so 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 much harm on american interests they're effectively disrupting the whole supply chain that it's gotten to the point that they're not willing to go through all of that to save this fragile entity that's not even serving its interests so moving forward the whole discussion the whole the the whole rhetoric is going to be around the destiny of the entity it's fitness for life so to speak um so there needs to be an understanding that with these court rulings what transpires is the political interests and a big part of american interests is being able to actually control public perception you know that's why america has been able to reign um for all these decades you know since the 90s you know they, they sell this idea of hollywood they sell this idea of American dream, for example, that's what the software is all about. But we've seen that when this massacre has come, when this genocide has come, it's been so high profile, it's been so tangibly felt and seen by the world that ultimately those masks of deception have fallen in a way that has never really been previously the case. Um, And the reality is that it's affecting their interests. Especially because, you know, this is the first time Israel, the occupation entity, has been accused in the global, like, world court. This is the first time things have been laid out. Um, and arguably, people say, you know, this is not enough to hold them accountable. But, like, what does this do for public perception where, you know, people are slowly waking up and, and seeing what, you know, what's happening now has been going on for a very long time? Absolutely. I mean, one of the indicators of this public perception, like changing on a mass scale, is the fact that they even allowed this court case to proceed and they didn't intervene on that level. You know, it's it's less in their interest almost to not allow this case to go through, because if they did it, then the backlash would be so much greater. So even governments themselves, you know, they cannot get over certain facts. They can't ignore it. Otherwise, that would create a massive gap. Uh, between them and the public and at the same time of course um you know america has the ability to use those different means to pressure the icj whether to allow the decision to go forward or not but i think in particular um in the elections you know this is going to be so transparent and so clear the divide between those in power and the general perception uh mm-hmm. but a point more broadly just for the people of the justice seeking people of the world it's like if we're awaiting justice from the icj then really we haven't understood what these systems are designed for. What we can take from the ICJ is that the issue has become so decisive, so transparent, so clear that even the systems that serve as tentacles for the imperialist 
hegemons are forced to admit that reality. So we almost want to shift that title from, you know, the ICJ is designed to invoke justice to it's designed to kind of confirm and acknowledge the facts on the ground. You know, that's as far as the ICJ is designed to capacitate. And that's exactly what it did. You know, it ignored the occupation entity's assertion for self-defense. You know, that, that that was something that was completely ignored. And that was the main argument that the occupation entity used. Um, the ICJ went into detail about the evidence of genocide. So they stated the blatant facts. Um, you know, it was almost like a fact finding case by the court. So what's so important about this is that for us just to seek a justice seeking people in the world we can use this you know we we can use this as, as a kind of base you know in the same way that we might use UN resolutions to make a point or we might use Amnesty International for example when you want to agitate in the belly of the beast essentially in corporate capitalist companies for example in your workplace if you want to ask them to divest for example from projects in the occupation entity you know you can use this as something to rest your case on um, and of course also more pertinently back to your question on public perception I mean the ICJ its strength is that it's also exposed that colonial mentality of the US of Britain of the collective West that's not only turning a blind eye to the suffering it's actually claiming it's not happening it's actually outright rejecting it. You know, you can see that from the statements of the likes of Starmer, for example, Keir Starmer in the UK, who's the leader of the Labour Party, Rishi Sunak. You can see that from the likes of Kirby, you know, when he's asked to speak in press conferences. You know, they are interested in nothing but saving the occupation entity from collapse right now. So ultimately, it's like these laws that exist within Western countries built upon justice and and equality and that the bid outright forms of oppression we need to use that as our base through which the unjust actions through which the oppressions that are perpetrating by these same entities that have these laws we need to use those laws as the base through which we target those unjust actions and we call them out and we expose them and we also seek to prosecute them and so for that reason you know you see that the resistance for example the resistance made it very clear um, that they stand by the ICJ. They stand by, um, you know, the case of South Africa because only the naive would rely on the UN or would rely on the international community to liberate. You know, but if there is foot on the ground, if there is real action, like what we're seeing from the resistance, Palestine, Yemen, Lebanon, um, Iraq, all of them, of course, held by Iran, then this ICJ ruling, we should almost see it as a bonus. You know, it becomes an echo to that real action that's happening on the ground. But we don't expect that echo to be the action. That's right, the key right. point here. The echo is not the action. It's just the echo. And for that reason, of course, the resistance is going to support it because it's just one of many tools. It's almost like a moral victory, you could see it, for the Palestinian cause. I mean, it also allows the resistance to vindicate armed resistance. You know, it's this case that, you know, the ICJ failed to call for a ceasefire. So it's our job to liberate the Palestinians because no one else is going to liberate the Palestinians. No one else is, is going to shift the balance of powers on the ground. It cannot be shifted unless it's through this kind of uh, armed conflict. That's ultimately how maps are carved. Let's Let's go back to, you know, what you said, but geopolitically and from the political landscape, you know, while this does help put the footing, like you said, and it, it gives people that it lays everything out, it still, you said, does nothing politically. Um, can you expand on what that means? Absolutely. I mean, so the biggest proof of that is that you know, if we talk about an institution like the UN, you know, since its inception, okay, it was the UN that actually gave legitimacy towards the occupation entity. It was the UN that turned a blind 
eye towards the Nakba of 1948. That's not something that they're willing to talk about. That's something that they shy away from. They only talk about their datum, their base point is 1967. And so for that reason, for example, the occupation of uh, the West Bank is illegal. Uh, But the occupation of all of historic Palestine is not labeled as illegal. It was something that was normalized and, and the world turned a blind eye against that. Right. Um, And so the UN talks about this two state solution. Okay, you know, they began talking about it in the Clinton period, uh, but then it was uh, America ultimately. And it was the Israeli occupation entity that rescinded. Why? Because the greatest amount of land theft and annexation happened during the 1990s. That was when Yitzhak Rabin was in power. That was when, uh, you know, Oslo was taking place. So that tells you that actually the occupation entity. I mean, their slogan is from the Nile to the Euphrates, right? Like by their own admission, there's no such thing as a two-state solution. And when they believed that armed struggle was actually sleeping, little did they know that October the 7th was years in the making and was cooking in the background, right? In 2018, when when Trump was in power, you know, he he not only brokered the whole Abraham Accords and the deal of the century, but ultimately this deal of the century sought to erase the Palestinian issue. It sought to forego Palestinian uh, statehood. The idea was that you can get some Arab countries to essentially bribe um, and pay millions and millions in infrastructure projects and you know, regeneration projects, but ultimately it sought to legalize even the occupations of the Golan Heights, you know, the the annexations of the West Bank, you know, they wanted to to, to make it seen as legal, despite the fact that the UN says it's illegal. So they were willing to step on UN resolutions in order to fulfill their goal. And of course, America would let the occupation entity do that and continue um, as long as uh, there is no real force of action on the ground, right? When October the 7th happened, that is when the Palestinian issue got put on the focus. It's like the Palestinians were dead. They weren't existent. When October the 7th happened, that's when America was like, hold on. We have no choice but to take the two-state solution into real consideration. Now, if we don't actualize the two-state solution, that is a real issue for us um, because it's actually now their only hope of quashing the resistance. It's their only, the t- this two-state solution is actually now America's hope the only hope of actually securing American interests in the region, because they know that if they don't give Palestinians something, you know, there's going to be more resistance. There's going to be more October the 7th. And they've actually come to realize the inevitable reality that if you keep besieging Palestinians, the Palestinians are going to resist and it's going to lead to something such that it's uprooting the occupiers. It's even worse in the long run. And that's why Secretary of State Blinken, um, during the G7, you know, he made it very clear that there's going to be no reoccupation of Gaza. So don't even dream of the settlements that existed prior to 2005, because that was what some of the statements from the occupation entity was coming out as. And they said, not only that, but there's going to be no more besiegement of Gaza. We don't want Gaza besieged because Gaza's besiegement, imagine if under the besiegement, this is what they're capable of. So obviously the American plan moving forward, um, of course, they they want to decimate the Gazan resistance. That's the reason that they haven't called for a ceasefire is because they ultimately want to drain and they want to bleed the Gazan resistance, right? Mm. And they want to get to a point where it's so weak such that it has no more ammunition to fight. And then that's, you know, their catch point. That's when they're able to come and finish it off. That's their plan. That's the reason that it's been so long since they've called for for a ceasefire. But ultimately, their hopes is to defeat the Gazan resistance so that they can allow the PA or a Wesley or a Western friendly uh, face to to rule Gaza. But of course, that is the biggest deception ever because this level of genocide has made even the person that wasn't supportive of resistance in Palestine 
supportive of it. So ultimately, it's it's all really backfired. And the Ghazan resistance is showing signs of nothing but uh, continued uh, strength and steadfastness on, on the ground. Let's go back to the two-state solution. So what right. do you make of that? Like, it, it, in the sense that, you know, they're, they're talking about, it seems like, you know, they're trying to settle for something so that, you know, appeases the masses and appeases people are is that where we're heading towards this year right so so um it's really important to state that it almost doesn't matter what the israeli occupation entity thinks right so from the israeli occupation entity's lens they've made it very clear their worst nightmare is actually the the two-state solution because what that means is they see it as a recipe for another war they see it as the Ghazan resistance is going to emerge stronger imagine if without um a state you know they were able to garner the power that they have to lead a military um you know offensive like they did on october the 7th so so i guess the occupation entity is even willing to sacrifice its soldiers it's willing to forego the hostages because it considers this war currently a survival war it considers this war their last chance but it's really important to stress that after this confrontation ends most likely netanyahu is going to be put on the side we know america we know the occupation entity cannot breathe without the American oxygen, right? So ultimately it's the American that plan that's going to be put forward. He keeps coming back though, like a, a recurrent ni a nightmare or something like that. He keeps uh, coming back the third time, yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. But it's reached the point where there's just so much at stake. I mean, mm -hmm. even on the level of uh, the people of the occupation entity, the settlers, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's not a sustainable situation because the internal divide couldn't be any stronger now i mean the whole strategy of america right now for the region is it's seeking it's seeking stability anything mm -hmm. that will lead to stability in the region it wants to seek um of mm -hmm. course and st stability from the american sense right because we know that it's it's all based on destabilization essentially um mm -hmm. but so from its lens you know having someone like netanyahu in power is is very very counterproductive because his cabinet of course is, is very very extreme and that's contributing to part of the problem you know it's not helping in in the whole you know soft war strategy and america is very big on the soft war strategy but it's important mm -hmm. to state that for america america is not seeking to, to appease anyone right now america has no choice but to go forward with the two-state solution it has absolutely mm -hmm. no choice because it's it's actually dangerous for america if it doesn't because what that means is more besiegement for the palestinians is leading to more resistance it's leading mm -hmm. to more of a reaction and a strengthened resistance axis is really a blow to their interests in a region that's of strategic importance it will weaken their presence. And that's the last thing that they want. So from that perspective, they need to put a friendly, a, a, a Western friendly entity in charge of Gaza. So consider this scenario, right? So like the US would want to stop the war. It will bring in countries like Egypt, for example, the UAE. Um, it would uh, make them ultimately pay the price for all the death and destruction that the American weapons have caused. So it would make them you know, pay for reconstruction efforts and projects, ultimately in the bid to, you know, we want to redeem the Arab leaders, right? Like that's how they'll sell it to them. Like you guys have normalized with the occupation entity. The world hates you for that. So go redeem yourself. Um, at the same time, they would want to propose that the PA itself reaches out to the resistance in Gaza. So it looks like, oh, it's the resistance in Gaza that has a problem with, uh, you know, the two-state solution. Or it's the resistance in Gaza that's that's on the offensive. And it's the resistance of Gaza that's bringing death and destruction. That's ultimately how they would want to sell it, right? So in that mm -hmm. sense, the Gazan resistance will feel like it has no choice but to, you know, accept negotiations with the PA that represents, you know, 
Palestinians, so to speak, right? And then they'll seek to ultimately drown the PA further. They'll seek to drown Fatah further with money, push projects that improve Palestinian livelihoods. And ultimately, the American strategy is one in which they, they would want to even split the Palestinian population. They would want to cause factionalism within the Palestinians because they bet on the fact that there are some Palestinians that are so sick of the death and the destruction that they're just going to be like, that's it. Like, we're done. You know, enough. Like, we don't want to go into another confrontation after this. And 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 so so that's that's the American strategy, and that's that's actually a very dangerous strategy, right? It, because it's a strategy of the soft war. It's a strategy where they seek to split the population um, internally and turn the resistance against uh, the people. But the one thing that keeps my hopes up is the fact that all of this blood that we've witnessed from the Palestinians, no doubt, it will not go in vain. There's no way that it can go in vain. Um, and we've reached a point where it's normalized to say that the only solution for Palestinian liberation um, is armed resistance. You know, that's something that's very much globally now uh, become normalized and globally uh, become uh, recognized. Um, and when mass opinion reaches that level, um, really, those in power have nothing or are unable to do anything about the reality of the situation. Let's go back to the relationship um, between the United States and the Israeli occupation entity. Would you say that there, so, you know, obviously as, as, as time goes forward and really this extremist Netanyahu regime is not serving in the best interests of the American soft war, do you feel like there is a fallout happening between the two regimes? Like you said, you know, it, the Israeli occupation can't live without the American oxygen. Sure. But like, is there fragmentation happening here? Do you feel like America's still in charge and, and they're unhinged or they have no choice but to listen? What's yeah, going on? Yeah, so America has always been in charge and it always will be in charge. And this is a very, very important point. And you just have to look at, I mean, you just have to ask yourself the question, you know, what happens if America ceases supplying its weapons? You know, it sent over a hundred ship, sorry, un, over a hundred planes filled with cargoes, right? And it's warships into the region. You know, what happens if America ceases? What, what happens if America pulls out the red card and says, that's it, we're not going to support this entity anymore? You know, um, as um, Amir Abdullahian put it, you know, the occupation entity wouldn't survive for 10 minutes without American support, you know, and the fact that America is is the one that is in control of the situation isn't the fact that America actually created this entity, not out of care and love for the Zionists, it couldn't care less about anything but its interests. Mm. Um, so that's why I emphasize the fact that um, Netanyahu has absolutely no say in the matter. It's, mm. it's irrelevant what he thinks. Um, but moving forward, as I mentioned, it's an even bigger crisis than who is currently in power. It's a question of the occupation entity moving forward. As we've mentioned, it's become a liability. America has come to realize that actually it cannot sustain itself in the region without recognizing the effect of an active forces on the ground. You know, mm. and for that reason, um, America made a very clear... E even Blinken at one point um, last month uh, mentioned how um, the Ghazan resistance needs to be included in any negotiation moving forward because they are the ones that have emerged successful um, out of this confrontation and the occupation entity has emerged uh, as a failure. So we might not be seeing that accountability happening right now uh, because you're in the middle of the war, right? And it's America's default position is to push as much as it can the occupation entity to deal a decisive blow to the Hassan resistance, but it's unable to do that. Until when is America going to keep supporting 
an entity that is unable to protect itself you know let alone it's not even about protecting western interests it's incurring harm upon western interests when the whole of the global supply chain is being uh, disrupted and the last thing this is a very important point the last thing america wants in the region is war it's not looking to provoke the resistance axis you know you could see very simply that for example when pakistan decided to launch a strike onto iran um rather than using that as an opportunity america turned a blind eye against that strike you know it made it very clear we don't want to aggravate I iran that's not what we want you know for that reason when the occupation entity even um assassinated um you know the general of the irgc razi mosawi um they they made it very clear that had nothing to do with us and that's true it had nothing to do with them because the last thing they want is to be dragged into a war and it's not the case that they're able to be dragged into a war you know it's it doesn't even matter what the israeli occupation entity thinks for me to sit here and say oh they're trying to drag them into a war because america is so much bigger than to be able to get dragged into a war you know the moment the occupation entity wants to fall out of line it will put yeah. it in its place and it can do that and it has 101 different ways of doing that because israel cannot survive without its dependence uh on america so once we understand this reality once we understand that actually america is seeking de-escalation because this region is so important for america that <laughs> it's had to directly come and consolidate mm -hmm. itself to fulfill that gap that has been created as a result of the failure of the occupation entity. Yemen is another example. You know, how many uh, ships did Yemen strike, Israeli occupation ships did Yemen strike before America decided to bomb Yemen? You know, mm. it was over two months. They were patiently waiting. Okay, when is Yemen going to stop? When is it going to stop? Until they reached the point where they're like, hold on, this is getting really bad. We need mm. to uh, create some kind of deterrence equation on the ground. They hoped that the bombings would deter Yemen. Um, of course, now they're so getting yeah, Yemen, to do Yemen became a really big thorn for them. Yes. It really 100%. did. You know, I, uh, there's a there's a new statistic. Um, the WCI found that freight costs, which stood at $1,382 on November 30th, 2023, have risen by 186%, reaching $3,964 on January 25th. And this is due to Yemen rerouting these ships. Um, where... Obviously, you know, we're we're seeing movement to de-escalate the situation. Like you said, you know, troops are being removed. Um, where where are we going to go from here? You know, we, we've heard from the ICJ. This case could truly drag on uh, for years. And, you know, I think one of the things that they talked about was that we were going to they were going to report back in a month. Um, and the bombing, the desecration, are we going to keep seeing that continue? A lot of people want to know, like, when is the carnage going to end? What, what are we going to see next? Is this going to, you know, spindle off into a regional war? Uh, or And then with American elections coming up as well this year, like yeah, what are yeah. we going to be, what do we make of the situation going forward? For sure. I mean, the trajectory is definitely one of the escalation. Um, I can't stress this enough because America has every opportunity to escalate, but it's been doing the absolute opposite. It's the last thing it wants because that's ultimately America shooting itself on the foot, unless, of course, it decides to shoot itself on the foot. Um, but ultimately, um, so what we're seeing is a trajectory, overall trajectory of de-escalation, which basically means that um, there's going to be continued attacks and they will be sustained 
but they'll probably reduce um, in their magnitude. So for example, you know, if we're talking back to like a month or two months ago, easily in a day, you would have 700 killed. You'd easily in a day have a thousand killed. Now you're looking at the statistic of like 150, you know, people mm -hmm. killed in a day, for example. You know, so the number of, um, you know, civilians that are getting killed has decreased but of course america still yet has not called for a ceasefire and and that's very clear from from all the press releases and the conferences of when its representatives speak because ultimately they still hope that they want to weaken the Hassan resistance to a point where they can ultimately push that two-state solution um from a good position um i think they're most likely surprised that the Hassan resistance is still able to continue to fight and still has the munition reserve to continue we're talking three months in that's not a joke um, even when you look at the Hassan resistance, for example, it's been some time before they've targeted the heart of the occupation entity in 1948. So ultimately, the, the occupation entity is unaware of the ways in which weapons are getting delivered into Gaza. So in their mind, ultimately, what they're doing right now is they're trying to buy time to bleed Hamas. That's what they want to do. They want to bleed the resistance. They want to drain it, basically. Um, and so for that reason, they keep giving the occupation entity weapons. It's like, come on, you know, keep hitting them. Um, but of course, um, they're just fighting themselves. Um, and for anyone that's that's reading proper news, um, where real information is coming out from El Mayadeen, for example, or the Cradle, or TMJ, for example, um, the Israeli occupation entity is sustaining heavy, heavy losses. And that's why they've gone into phase three. So, so this is the third phase in the war uh, in which um, they have, you know, withdrawn their troops, their reserve soldiers from the battlefield, ultimately, um, that's not a decision of the establishment. That's a decision of the reserve uh, force itself. That's mm. unwilling to fight. It's unwilling uh, to give its life. It's mm. unwilling to die. They don't see this as a cause that's worth uh, giving their life for. Whereas the Palestinians, mm. of course, um, they do. So ultimately, right now, the strategy is still let's bleed the Ghazan uh, resistance. But little mm. do they know that, um, you know, Gaza has its ways of getting weapons to delivered to it it's really interesting even with the whole tunnel situation they wow. discovered that you know there's over 500 kilometers i mean that's huge wow. 500 kilometers worth of tunnels the length of the tunnels within the Gaza strip some that extend even into the occupation entity that uh they are unaware of that they were unable to to capture its route uh because i remember one of the the analysts saying that the person who kind of devised that plan uh, for mm. the tunnels has has the highest iq ever you know because wow. these tunnels are designed in such a way that they don't link to one another so one tunnel it it might end after 300 meters right and, and they've discovered a few of the tunnel shafts and and they've seen it but what does that amount to three kilometers out of 500 kilometers um so so it's it's huge you know and every time they're in Gaza they're paying hefty hefty losses uh because the Gazan resistance is keeping its eye out on the soldiers um, and is targeting them wherever they see them and over a thousand uh Israeli tanks have caught fire since October the 7th so you can only imagine the number of casualties and the number of deaths that don't go reported, of course, for psychological warfare reasons to make yeah. it seem like the, the occupation entity is actually winning this war. Because on top of killing civilians in Gaza the way that they are, the brutal aggression on Gaza, not only that, but you're also losing the war. You know, mm -hmm. it's a double loss for the occupation entity, at least if the occupation entity was 
there was some kind of military victory, you know, it can say that out loud, you know, that we're one step closer towards defeating the Hussein resistance. But right. for those psychological warfare tactics, they don't actually reveal the extent of the losses uh, that are being incurred. So for sure, from a civilian toll, that is, I mean, the numbers are reducing with time um, as much as it's difficult to even see uh, the death of, of one Hassan. Um, but ultimately, the trajectory is one of, um, you know, ceasefire. Ultimately, it's de-escalation uh, because the resistance axis don't want a confrontation. And if a confrontation is ever going to happen, it's not going to come from the American side. It would come from the resistance side. But the resistance is calculated enough um, to not drag the region into a war that would further expand the fire of conflict and already the occupation entity is sustaining heavy losses at the hands of of um you know just one axis from the resistance you know so that's even more powerful than if other entities were to get involved if lebanon was to get involved if iran was was going to start firing missiles ultimately the issue of Gaza will be lost the issue of palestine will be lost because then it will start to appear as though it's a regional war you know mm -hmm. then it will start to appear like the occupation entity itself is the victim you know in this region that's so inherently hostile whereas now the world is seeing the true reality of the occupation entity um it's true ferocity um and that's being made clear to the world thank you so much but for joining us today it's nice thank to hear from you. you from time nice. to time uh thank you, join me more. thank you all for tuning in to the hard truth stay tuned for more episodes where i bring in guests and people to shed light on world issues as well as uh, weekly newscasts. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>